The cultural phenomenon had its beginning just over a month ago uh, on October 2nd at a NASCAR race in Talladega, Alabama, Talladega Super Speedway. If, if anybody cares, I, I, I don't. Brandon Brown, a 28-year-old driver, had just won his first race and was being interviewed by an NBC sports announcer or sports reporter. The, the, the crowd began chanting in the background, as was being done through the month of September in many sporting events across the country. The chant was an extreme, obscene vulgarity addressed at President Joe Biden. The reporter heard the chant and apparently couldn't make out the words and suggested they were shouting, let's go, Brandon. And the cultural phenomenon was born. You see, let's go, Brandon quickly became a euphemism for the vulgar appellation directed at our country's president. It has been printed and hung at various public events. It has been flown on Banners behind planes over political events. A southwestern pilot signed off his PA address to his passengers with the now infamous words. A congressman finished his speech on the U.S. House floor with a fist bump and the words, let's go, Brandon. Another congressman approached the podium to address his colleagues on the same U.S. floor with the words printed on his face mask. Yet another congresswoman wore a dress at a GOP event with the words of the slogan printed on the back. A U.S. senator from Texas, an outspoken Christian, posed with a sign bearing the words at the, at the World Series in Atlanta. Former President Donald Trump's PAC is, uh, is selling a, a T-shirt with the American flag and, and the chant, and it'll only set you back 45 bucks. Several rap and country s songs uh, using the chant as song titles have been made uh, and have, have been sung and have made it to number one on iTunes. So if you're looking to be an up-and-comer, write a song with that title. Number one on iTunes. One such song on YouTube is by a conservative Christian rapper while holding an, atom, uh, an automatic rifle wearing a MAGA hat and an impeached Joe Biden t-shirt all, all while singing, Let's Go Brandon. And by the way, the YouTube video has over 600,000 views with 31,000 likes. Anywhere the president of these United States goes in his motorcade, banners can be seen and chants can be heard. It is ubiquitous. With historically low approval ratings for both him and his vice president, people are upset with the president and his administration. Veteran GOP ad maker Jim Anosenzi has no qualms about the coded crude vulgarity, calling it, quote, hilarious. He said, and I quote, unless you are living in a cave, you know what it means, but it's done with a little bit of class, and if you object and take it too seriously, go away. One article I read said, now people who in many cases would never lob the, I changed it, the expletive bomb, 
don't want you to have to explain that to your children if you don't want to. Never lob the bomb in public, have the supposedly perfect substitute, let's go Brandon. And of course, the left is decrying the chant in disingenuous, hypocritical horror. Then, just over a week ago, at John Hagee's megachurch cornerstone church in San Antonio, Texas, the chant broke out. It was even orchestrated by those on stage. Oh, to be sure, it was not the church in the building at the time. The building had been rented by Reawaken America, a political rally currently making its way across the country. True, John Hagee's son, Pastor Matt Hagee, apologized for the event and the chant being held in sacred church space. But, 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 but why would such a chant break out in a building among many who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ? And you say, well, that's easy. We don't agree with many of President Biden's policies, his vigorous support of abortion, his vaccine mandates, his handling of the economy, highest inflation in 30 years, his coddling of the socialist left, the Build Back Better bill, which with unbridled spending on the backs of the American people, his handling of the debacle in Afghanistan and the southern border, the list I know goes on and on. So does that mean that we as followers of Jesus can show such blatant, obscene disrespect of a governing leader inconsistent with Scripture? Or are we to be different? Allow me to quote from the aforementioned article by Steve Viers. I'd never heard of him, but I like him. He's pastor of Faith Church in Indiana. This phenomenon provides a fascinating opportunity, challenge, and question for followers of Jesus Christ. Is it appropriate for Christians to use this phrase in any sense or setting? The answer from Scripture is an unqualified no. The fact that such a reminder would even have to be given to the people of God shows how far Christ's church has fallen from our purpose and position of being visible representatives of our invisible God. Stunning. And I agree. Consider these verses. Jesus told his followers, let your light, your light, Shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's go, Brandon, is a poor substitute for light. The Apostle Paul told the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He further told the Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now listen to this, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting 
but, but rather giving of thanks. Perhaps giving of thanks this Thursday will be more appropriate for Christians than an obscene chant while watching the NFL. Byers says further in his article, this is unbelievable. When the people of God are caught up using words and phrases that are wicked to their very core, we have shown that politics has become more important than purity. Whenever and wherever that occurs, judgment needs to begin at the household of God, which is the church. This is what the author of this revealing article says, which coincides with my own concerns about the way our patriotic nationalism has invaded the church of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, we are citizens of another country with a sovereign who expects us to be different. We must do better than this because what does the Word of God say? Does it have anything to say about how we as believers respond to governing authorities? Or, listen to this, I carefully crafted this sentence, or is such instruction abrogated in a democratic republic with free speech? Is Amendment 1 our rallying cry, our guiding principle, or are the verses I just read? We are in a study of the book of Titus, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his apostolic protege serving on the island of Crete. At this time, Crete was ruled by the Roman Empire and had been since 67 B.C., almost 100 years. And they hated their Roman overlords, the the Roman yoke. The the, the Cretans were notoriously insubordinate. The, The Roman historian Polybius, before this was even written, tells us that they were constantly involved in insurrections and murders and internecine. That means destructive Civil wars must have been a bunch of Republicans and Democrats, and, and, that, and that it was almost, quote, impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. And so Paul writes to tell Titus how to instruct these new churches, these new believers among the Cretans who found themselves in such an environment? How were they to be different from those around them? How indeed are we to be different than our increasingly immoral, ungodly, non-Christian culture? Let's read the text, Titus chapter 2, verse 15, last verse of the chapter, and then the first three of chapter 3. These things speak and exhort Reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's who we used to be. 
But the implication, he says, that's what we want you, but, but no more. We are to be different. We didn't, we didn't used to be different. We used to fit right in. But Paul will go on in the verses that follow to tell us how, while we once fit that awful description in, in verse 3, how, how, how and why we do no longer, we shouldn't act like unbelievers no matter how ubiquitous and loud the chants become. Sitting in a sports arena and the chants erupt around us, what do we do? Do we join right in? Do we laugh or snicker along with the rest or are we grieved by such this description, such foolish, disobedient, deceived, malicious, hateful speech, obscene? Paul's typical pattern was to give doctrine followed by duty. He divides entire books that way. The book of Ephesians, for example, the first three doctrine, first three chapters, the next three, then because this is true, this is how we should act. He actually reverses the order here. He calls us to be different even though we were once not different. Then he tells us why we are no longer who we once were. So we get how we are to act this week before we get to why in the weeks to come after our Advent series. Here's the outline of the text, how Titus teaches, which incidentally has that application to current faithful spiritual leaders. And then this verse actually acts as a transition to the, verse, into the, uh, to the verses in the next chapter. And then how Christians act. This is how we're, this is how we're supposed to be toward governing authorities and actually toward our neighbors. And then how non-Christians act, in fact, how we once acted. But something happened. Something changed us, you see, verses 4 and following. Chapter 2, you'll remember that Paul addressed various groups of people within the church. This, this, is, this is how we're to treat one another uh, in the church, older men, younger men, old, older women, younger women, slaves, masters. And then notice, sprinkled throughout these instructions, Paul kept insisting that by our actions toward one another, our behaviors w- would actually adorn the, the doctrine of God. It would actually make the gospel attractive. It was supposed to be how we act. It's supposed to be a witness to outsiders as they, as they look in, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for for you, Titus, in contrast to the false teachers who are getting it all wrong, speak the things which are fitting, which are appropriate for sound doctrine. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, older men and older women are to be dignified, reverent in their behavior, respectable. Verse 5, as younger women are discipled by older women, they behave in such a way that the word of God will not be dishonored. Verses 7 and 8, younger men are to show themselves to be examples of, of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound, healthy in speech. That's interesting, which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame and have nothing bad to say about us so that it won't make, na- it made front page national news that a church building at least, many professing believers We're disrespecting obscenely the President of the United States. Verse 9 and 10, we were 
Slaves were to be subject to their masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You see, over and over, our behavior is supposed to be different, making Christianity and the gospel attractive. Then he followed that doctrine, remember, in chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared to all, bringing salvation to all, that is, to, to all who would believe, instructing us. What? To, to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, what Paul later, or what earlier called in Galatians, this present evil age. We're supposed to be different lights on a hill, salt and light. So, verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, Titus. Let no one disregard you. All that he has said, and we'll go on to say in chapter 3, these things I want you to speak. And by speaking these things, you will exhort, that is, you will encourage the people to behave in certain ways, and then you will also reprove them when they don't behave in these ways when we listen when we allow the sinful culture to start infiltrating the church rather than the church infiltrating and impacting our culture what has happened notice these things speak with all authority you see Titus was like Timothy likely young but, but, but what you are speaking, Titus, you are speaking with my authority. More, you are speaking with God's authority because that which is written to you is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the authority of God himself. What you are teaching is from God himself, so don't let anyone disregard you. This verse has significant implications, especially for today, not only for teachers and pastors, but for anyone who teaches and preaches the word of God. It is not their authority, is not their teaching that they are teaching. They are teaching the very truths of God himself. This is important. If pastors and teachers are faithfully teaching, don't miss those words, faithfully teaching the truths of God's word, we are bound to listen further. We are bound to obey because they are speaking by God's authority. They are not to be disregarded. It is amazing today how many people see themselves as their own authorities I will decide. They become judges of truth and judges of the Christian faith and judges of the word of God. I want to say very gently but very firmly, as followers of Jesus, we are bound by the authority of God's word. We are not at liberty to accept what we want to accept and reject what we want to reject, not as followers of Jesus. We are under authority. So inasmuch as I or others teach the scripture faithfully, and again, Faithfully, because no teacher is inerrant, but in, in as much as the Scripture is rightly taught, we are bound to obey, whether we like it or not. The only reason Titus, other faithful teachers speak with all authority is because they do so on the foundation of the Word of God. They cannot be disregarded, even if it flies in the face of culture. Having set this up, pointing back to what Paul taught in chapter 2, he launches us into chapter 3. This is how Christians should act or behave. Notice in chapter 2, Paul was talking about how Christians act within the church family. Now he turns his attention to how we should act in the world. In verse 1, he talks 
about how we respond to governing authorities. Then in verse 2, how we respond to our neighbors, to everyone in general um, regarding governing authorities. <laughs> Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities. There's, there's, no, and if you're, there's no and in the, in the Greek. It could be translated subject to ruling authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Notice he reminds them. That's it. That means that they'd heard this before. That is incredibly interesting to me. Paul and Titus had recently evangelized the, the island, planting churches in many of its cities. He, Paul left, leaving Titus in charge to set things in order in these brand new churches, newly planted churches, new believers. But apparently, even in their infancy, Paul had taught them about being subject to governing authorities, which tells me a couple of things. First, this is basic Christianity 101. We ought to know this by now. Being subject to authority over us, in this case governing authority, is what Christians do. The second thing I would note is we need to be reminded of this. <laughs> Haven't we heard this before? Over and over. You say, I know. And yet we need to be reminded. And in our culture today, especially today, where there is such political division, we need to be reminded Consider verses that we've seen through the years, even recently, when asked about taxes, Jesus himself said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Paul said to the Roman church, right in the shadow of the Roman emperor, they were having their picnics outside his window. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and that which, those which exist are established by God. Peter said, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority or to governors sent by him. Christians obey. It's what we do. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all those and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I would ask us, I would ask us, do we spend as much time on our feet decrying the present administration, chanting perhaps vulgar slogans, as we do on our knees, praying for their salvation. We are to pray for them so that we can lead quiet and tranquil lives, yes, for the purpose of the gospel, so they can be saved. It's why we're here. I have been roundly criticized for having Vice President Mike Pence at our church a year ago, actually a year ago this month, as if it was some political stunt. I, 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 I told you. It's not like I picked up the phone and said, hey, Mike, you want to come to church? The, the vice president's office called and asked if he could come to church. What was I supposed to say? And I want you to understand I would do it again tomorrow. To be clear, if President Joe Biden or Vice President Kamala Harris wanted to come to church here, they would be welcomed and appropriately honored. 
They would hear the gospel and I would pray that they would respond to the gospel because God desires all people to be saved, even those we hate. Listen, we do not have to agree with ungodly policies, but, but nor should we be ungodly in our actions toward them. Back to the text. Remind them to be subject to, to subject themselves as the tense of the Greek, middle voice. It's something that we do. It's not something that we're forced to do. It's not something that is done to us. We subject ourselves because it is right and biblical to do so. Now, now, now listen, I know that there are exceptions to the command. I know everybody always wants to go to the exceptions, so let's go ahead and get that out of the way, shall we? Okay, fine. The Hebrew midwives who refused to put the male babies of Israel to death under Pharaoh's orders. It's interesting, you're not supposed to kill babies. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden idolatrous uh, images and were thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel who refused to not pray to God, to only pray to Darius if he prayed. He prayed to God anyway and ended up in the lion's den. To, to Peter and John, who told the Sanhedrin, you can tell us not to preach about Jesus if you want to, but know this, we will preach for we must obey God rather than men. We could talk about Corey Ten Boom, who hid Jews during the Holocaust. We could talk about martyrs around the world through the centuries to the present day who refused to bow the knee to false gods, to emperors who refused to deny Christ. We could talk about the reformers who refused to recant their faith, who translated the Bible and faced as a consequence eminent death. There are lots of reasons for civil disobedience, but we must make sure such disobedience is consistent with Scripture. If they tell us to do something the Bible forbids or not to do something the Bible commands, we simply respectfully disobey. This is biblical. I get it. But now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's, focus, let's not focus on the exceptions because Paul in Romans 13, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, and Paul in Titus 3 did not. We rather are to be subject to governing authorities. In case there's any confusion about that, we're to be obedient to them. Like Jesus said, we pay our taxes faithfully whether we like them or not. I actually had this sentence written knowing that my wife was here, we obey traffic laws. <laughs> Most of the time. We, we don't break the law. Christians ought to be the most faithful law-abiding law citizens around. Further, not only do we obey, we are ready for every good deed. Not only do we not do what we're not supposed to do, we do what we can do. Listen to me. We do good deeds consistent with governing authorities. We look for ways to honor and respect governing authorities. We look for ways to do good under governing authorities, meaning Christians should be the most helpful, good people around. People the government can count on to do good. They don't have to be concerned about us. This was the issue in the early church. They don't have to be concerned about us. Christians should be good and model citizens. We should be at the forefront of caring for the sick and the poor, caring for orphans and widows, promoting the common good and welfare of people. We should look for opportunities to bless people around us. Galatians chapter 6, Paul said, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those in the household. But he says to all people. 
That's who we're supposed to be. I cannot help but think of the current Afghan crisis. Tens of thousands of Afghan people, families, have fled nations around tens of thousands to the U.S. They are currently being housed on military bases across the country. The government recognizes that they need to get them off of the bases to suitable housing in appropriate communities where they can get jobs, schooling, medical care, learn to speak English, etc., where life can return to normal as much as is possible as they have been uprooted from their very homeland. And the church has stepped up. We're supposed to. The, 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 the government has actually looked to nonprofit organizations like the church to help. And so this church has stepped up. We are the first church working with Samaritan's Purse, which is working with other organizations to have churches and Christians sponsor Afghan families to care for them in the name of Christ. I am proud of that. These are Muslim families, as I understand that some churches have called and said, hey, can we get the Christian families? There aren't any. Our hope is that by doing good deeds, we will see them introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do understand, we are getting our first family next week. Don't expect to see them, there, them here next Sunday singing just as I am. They need Jesus. We put out the call. This was no small ask. We understood that. Volunteers will have to give hours of their time and resources every week to care. And over 140 of you responded. I could not be more proud of this church that is being ready to do good deeds. This brings us to verse 2. Buckle up. You say, it's not possible for you to talk any faster. Oh, yes, I can. Verse 2, our conduct with the world in general, our neighbors, but I would point out that we are not leaving governing authorities behind. Verse 2, Paul gives two negative commands, two negative qualities that Christians should shun, and followed by two positive commands. First, we are to malign no one to include governing authorities. Malign is the word from which we get our word blaspheme. It means to slander, to speak evil against, to blaspheme, to malign. If my lexical dictionary were written today, it would say, like, let's go Brandon. As Christians, our speech is flavored with salt and light. We are gracious. We are good. We are godly. Paul said this way in Colossians chapter 3, but now you also put them all aside. What's that? Anger, wrath, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Colossians 4, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to every person. Ephesians chapter 4, I used to, I used to coach with girls I mean, we have church basketball league in this community, and I coached the girls' basketball team for three years. It was so much fun. But I would begin every practice having them memorize Ephesians chapter 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouths. If the ref makes a call that you don't like, you hand them the ball and say, good call, and run that back down. If you don't, you sit down. No unwholesome word come out of your Mouths, but only a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to, hear, to, grace to those who hear. One author suggested, listen, this is incredible. 
that Paul is urging Christians to restrain from their natural inclination to say the worst about people. You know that's true. You know that you want to say the worst about people. You know that you want to say the worst about our president. Resist the urge. I think we get the point. Second, we're to be peaceable. It's not really a good translation. It's actually the opposite of what he tells us to not be. He literally says, don't be combative. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't be fighting. Don't be argumentative. So the opposite would, I'll call it, be peaceable. But the command with not slandering is to not be combative with your words, to not be fighting and quarreling because we are to be people of of peace, reconciling people to God through our godly and righteous behavior and even our words. We are to be people pursuing peace. We are to be different. And stop hiding behind social media. And he gives us two positive attributes to pursue. I'm almost done. Be gentle. I mean, you say, Scott, you should read that one again. Be gentle. The word speaks of kindness, gentleness, tolerance. The right definition of tolerance. I disagree with you, but I will tolerate you in the name of Christ. We may disagree, but we are kind and gentle in our disagreements with unbelievers, showing gracious tolerance. These are not qualities our culture pursues. Our culture pursues fights, fighting words. We are defensive. We are always on the offensive. We are always attacking. Christians are to be kind and gentle, even meek and humble. Why? Because we know who we once were. Verse 3 tells us. Notice next in verse 2, we also show all consideration or courtesy to all people. Notice the words all, all courtesy to all people. One author pointed out we can easily show some courtesy to some people, but the command is to show all courtesy to all people. Courtesy speaks of meekness. We're meek. Not weak. We're power under We're meek. We're humble. It's the same word as used in Matthew 5, 5 in the, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One author said it this way, attempting to fight fire with fire, many Christians have sought to counter anti-Christian ideas and programs using non-Christian tactics, declaring war on the prevailing non-Christian culture as if they are the enemy. They are not. It's who we once were. especially the liberal media, they have become hostile to unbelievers, the very ones that God has called them to love and reach with the gospel. Which is why Paul goes on to remind us in verse 3, for we also were once them. I'll save that verse 3 for the next time, but the reminder of who we once were is supposed to motivate us to treat people who still are what we once were with kindness and gentleness and courtesy, desiring them to come to a knowledge of the truth. Out of time. But allow me to close with a couple more quotes from that article that I referenced. I'm done. One nation, uh, excuse me, our nation is divided 
on an entire array of social, political, and cultural issues. To some degree, this will always be true until the Prince of Peace takes his rightful place on the throne of David. Only then will swords be beaten into plowshares and lions will lie down with lambs. However, the church should never needlessly sow seeds of discord and strife. We should be known as peacemakers and those who love people with whom we disagree. It's called speaking the truth in love. And then he finishes the article with these stunning words. Are you ready? Let's go, people of God. We can and must do better than this.